Hello, MCA Scullabout listeners. Thank you. My name is William, and we've had quite a ride here. We are now on episode 100. It has been a long journey, an interesting journey, and most importantly, a fun and informative journey with reliable hosts and co-hosts and guests and such. And we're glad that you've stayed with us for this long. Today, we're going to switch it up and do something a little different. We're going to interview a critical member to the MCA Scullabout podcast team, Vic Rubel. He was a green lean Marine at some point in his uh, previous past life. And today we are going to interview him on his experiences, but to make it even more awesome. Last week, we actually introduced to you our guest interviewer today, Kyle Watts, MCA uh, Leatherneck writer is returning on this episode to go ahead and interview Vic and reveal the deep and intrepid aspects of uh, Vic's life. So Kyle, Vic, Great to have you all on, and let's go ahead and uh, and start this 100th episode uh, shenanigans. Thanks, William. Man, this is uh, it's weird being on this end, but if you guys are looking for a deep dive, man, this is a pretty shallow pool on this end, man. This is a quick one. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for having me. Uh, thanks for letting me do this. And uh, you know, Vic, I think I've only I've only met you like maybe once or twice before this. So, yeah, I think some like mandatory fun stuff at the yeah. office, and then like you're like you're coming through. So it's actually kind of perfect because I know like nothing about your Marine Corps experience, so I'm interested to learn about it. So I mean, could you just tell me like like what years you served and uh, kind of who you were with and all that? Yeah, absolutely. But before we do this, I just want to note the um, sort of the irony. We actually had you uh, slated like an one of our very first guests early on. So the fact that like the first time we're talking is when I'm being interviewed, it's just (laughs) delicious irony. But um, yeah, so uh, I went, I joined the Marine Corps through the PLC program. Uh, And for those who don't know, uh, that's the platoon leaders course. And it's for regular schmoes like me, just college folks that get a wild hair up our asses and decide, hey, let me just go be a Marine. Um, and so uh, I left uh, the summer of 99. I went to, to Quantico for 10 weeks, came back as a member of the inactive ready reserve. So I was on the books for the Marine Corps, but, you know, uh, not getting paid, not, you know, unless we were being attacked and like no one's going to call up, you know, old, uh, candidate Ruble <laughs> to go man up post or something. But yeah, so then I finished out my senior year of college uh, and then commissioned on my graduation day. And then, uh, so that I guess technically I was a member of the fleet Marine force uh, starting 1998 and then retired in 2018. Wow. Okay. What'd you, what'd you get your degree in? Uh, I was a philosophy and political science um, undergrad. Okay. So just curious, did you did you choose that because you knew you were joining the Marines, or had you started that prior to deciding to join the Marines? Yeah, you know my my path is very impulsive. Um, <laughs> I actually played football in college, um, and but it was Division three, so it's just like you know high school plus or whatever. And, but I still had these like delusions of grandeur that I was actually going to go play in the NFL. So I really didn't think about much as far as like, I didn't take my academic um, 
career very serious. I, I sure. wanted to be a vet because I like dogs. So that, I was like, that's the extent of my sort of forward thinking. Yeah, um, that, well, I, I asked just because that that sounds very familiar because, you know, I started college as an electronics major because I liked playing video games. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and then when I switched to or I switched to history for my four year degree because I decided to join the Marine Corps and it just needed to be in something didn't matter what in. So I was like, well, I might as well do something I enjoy. <laughs> oh, that, that's funny. Yeah. I, the, the philosophy. Well, so first I. I realized I wasn't going to be a vet when I I couldn't even get into um, like past college algebra. I think I did a pre-calc and I only got a C plus on it because I really tried really hard. But I remember my pre my pre-calc um, professor saying like, I don't really get football players in my class. <laughs> and so you tried really hard and I appreciate that. So I got a C plus realized the yeah, my, my medical career is done. Um, but I really liked philosophy. I was actually taking a lot of um, just sort of elective classes. So I switched that to my major. Okay. And then the poli sci was a sort of a thing once I realized that, hey, yeah, I, maybe I could do the military thing. And I got this hero complex. Um, I read the newspaper back when reading newspapers was a thing to do. Uh, so, yeah, let me do poli sci too. And I'll combine my majors and do like mm -hmm. my, you know, sort of undergrad thesis on something the philosophy uh, of politics or whatever it's interesting that uh you know that the time frame of your service is essentially almost the entirety of the global war on terror you know yeah how is, uh so, so when did you get your commission again 98 98 okay so um where were you when 9 11 happened uh, I was at Camp Delmar, Camp Pendleton, uh, so the 21 area, for those who are familiar with Camp Pendleton. For those who maybe aren't familiar with the specifics but know the L.A. to San Diego I-5 route, um, it's the part you see on your right-hand side as you're going into Oceanside. So you get to look at all the beautiful beach scenery, and all of a sudden there's, like, barracks, and then there's, like, a freeway off-ramp. That's Del Camp Delmar. Mm -hmm. um, and... Yeah, so uh, interestingly, I was a first lieutenant. Uh, we were getting ready to do UDP in uh, Okinawa, uh, a six-month just sort of peacetime. Uh, I don't even know what it's, you know, sort of a bilat cooperation thing. You know, there's a bases out there. Um, and really, that I mean, this was Clinton era. We, we had obviously just moved into the first years of the Bush uh, administration, but when I joined up and and everything up until that point, like the really shit hot Marines were getting the Mew. Like those were your meat eaters, the guys out on the Mew. There was no, there was nothing that we foresaw for this long war. I mean, I think what the USS Cole had been bombed. There were some embassy bombings, but it just seemed like harassment, typical harassment stuff. Nothing that. It, no one on our level, you know, outside of TS was sort of picking up on the tea leaves of this thing being a all, you know, this huge web. Um, yeah, anyways, short wow. story boring. I was at 21 area. I remember we're getting ready for formation. I think we had just done PT, um, you know, obviously West Coast. So everything was already going on as we we're basically starting our day. Um, and someone came in was like, hey, somebody flew an airplane into the World Trade Center. 
And I was like, I was thinking it was like a private, like a private, like Cessna. So I just remember saying like, God, what an idiot. Like, I don't care how bad of a pilot you are. Like, how did you not see this massive building? Um, And so then all of a sudden it was like, we're in formation uh, down on the ramp. And my CEO was like, everybody get to the, we didn't have TVs in the every barracks room and stuff. And so they were like, everybody get to the common area. We're being attacked. Like, what the hell? So we all run up. Uh, go to the uh, BEQ common area, and they have the big screen TV. And I walk in just as the second airplane is hitting the uh, second tower. And it was like, holy shit, the first tower collapses. And then they're like, get to the armory. You know, because we're right off the five freeway. I mean, the only Mm -hmm. thing separating us from like any attack is a chain link fence. And Force Pro wasn't like the thing it was back then. I mean, you could jam through the gate with just a blue sticker on your car, usually a blue or red sticker that said Camp Pendleton. Sure. I mean, it was there. Force Pro wasn't a thing. And so, yeah, we go to the armory, everybody, you know, we didn't even really have kits back then. So it was just like, give your rifle if you even have one. For officers, it was pistols because they just didn't, they weren't issuing rifles back then. <laughs> you know, I mean, we were AAV guys. Like, having a rifle was seen as a burden because it's hard to get out of the turret. You know, so it was sure. like, but anyways, everybody gets your weapons. We have like, um, they hit, General Mattis had just started the Distinguished Marksman program. So they get all those guys up on the roofs. Um, we're locked down. Everyone is like scared shitless that, you know, what's going to happen with the nuclear power plant just up the road. So mm-hmm. we get word that like LAR is jamming over from Los Polgas to go secure the, um, you know, those AAV guys are like, watch out for, you know, somebody coming up from the beach, you know? So it was just, it was absolute chaos. Um, Jeez. No one knew what the hell was going on, but everybody figured that LA, now, especially now it's morning time. We figure all those flights, but it turns out like all those flights were West coast bound because they had the most fuel in them. But so nothing was coming our way mm-hmm. as we, but it, at the time, like it was just, you know, all cell phones, like everyone's calling everybody. So you couldn't get through to anyone. It yeah. was crazy, man. It was crazy. Wow. I, uh, one thing to back up a little bit. I, you mentioned AAVs. I, I forgot to ask, was that, was AAVs your MOS? Yeah. Yeah. I was a AAV officer. Um, okay. So, uh, wanted to do infantry, but didn't like walking. <laughs> like, I, I, like, I grew up on the beach. Um, so I was just like, yeah, surfing in the Marine Corps. That's just awesome. <laughs> okay. So uh did you did you guys continue with that UDP then or did that Yeah, so they were like um you know I have a buddy of mine uh they, I think the two muse were just like sort of passing by each other in Hawaii. And so my buddy was on was the muse platoon commander uh for the one that was outbound and so they immediately went to Afghanistan. Um, they were going to refit the one that was just coming back and send them back out. And then we were supposed to be the base of the combat replacements for those guys going. So we get to Oki. No one's expecting us to be there more than like 30 days. Uh, and then we were going to go uh, and be the sort of the fly-in echelon uh, from the Muse as they... But, you know, next thing you know, the Muse go like 300 miles or something yeah. uh, and roll up the Taliban like super quick. And so then we just end up doing like a bunch of show of force uh, and bilat stuff all over. Uh, um, we had, what was it, Balakatan was a normal sort of 
steady state operation that turned in like a full on deal, uh, partnering with soft guys going um, into uh, uh, you know basically war operate against the Abu Sayyaf in like the Philippines. Um, we got tasked with Cobra Gold, which was the Thailand thing, which turned to this massive show of force stuff, mm -hmm. trying to stop rat lines of folks leaving Afghanistan to go to into Indonesia. Um, I actually did uh, a like a week and a half, two week thing out in Hokkaido Island as a joint officer exchange. <laughs> so it was really busy. We weren't even we were on Okinawa more than like four weeks, four six weeks, um, and that was within and out processing. So it was a really great deployment. We got to do a bunch of cool stuff. You know, like we were out uh, for Cobra Gold, man. We were out like way in the jungle uh, for like a month. Okay. Um, yeah, <laughs> it was really cool. But um, wow. yeah, everyone thought we were going to Afghanistan. We didn't, so we ended up doing a bunch of fun stuff around. Okay. Um. So I, I when when was the first time, or how many times did you actually go to Iraq or Afghanistan? Uh, I did Iraq twice, Afghanistan once. Um, okay. I when I got back from that UDP, I was able. I just got promoted to captain, and so I was able to extend for the war effort um, because the battalion was getting all plussed up. And so we did the invasion in 03, uh, immediately came back because, you know, they're like, all right, well, you're extended. We've sort of stopped all of these like PCS stuff. So now that the hostilities are over, we need you to come back and start, you know, getting the summer PCS cycle going again. So I immediately left. Uh, once you know they did the whole mission accomplished thing with <laughs> president bush like landing on the aircraft carrier and stuff mm. we're like yeah anyway, it's over man we're awesome you know not knowing that like within months people would be going back um yeah and then i went again in 07 as a company commander uh doing basically as a provisional infantry mission uh with both rct1 and rct5 as their uh, sort of, well, you know, just one of the companies to huh. plus up as a provisional infantry company. Okay. And then uh, Afghanistan in 2012, that was a one year uh, with uh, RCT-5. And um, yeah, so those wow. are my three in the long, sort of in support of the long war. Okay. What, uh, what would you say like for Iraq, how how would you uh, do you remember like some of the how the war was different from your first deployment to your second deployment? Uh, between the two Iraq deployments, yeah, yeah, drastically different. Uh, that's a good question. Um, so I mean, just as far as like even the aesthetics, of the gear that we were using in OIF one was not the gear we were using in. What was it OIF? I guess five or which maybe set whatever it was in 07, okay. whatever iteration that was. Um, yeah, I mean, we were using, I mean, some people still had like the old trifold flak jacket. Um, <laughs> we, you know, we were we were in mop three the entire time, uh, because everyone was afraid of getting slimed with these oh, sure. chemical <laughs> weapons, you know. Um, so I just remember, you know. One of the great things about the war, about winning it as quickly as we did was, or not the war, but it's defeating 
the Saddam regime as quickly as we did was getting out of that mop suit as quickly as we did. You know, because sure. <laughs> I think it was funky, man, and it was hot, and it, you know, luckily it was still fairly cool in the uh, in March, but yeah, that thing was brutal. Hmm. Um, so yeah, the gear was very, very different. You know, I think most people were still using M sixteen A twos. Okay. Uh, A4s are just getting fielded, and they're usually being used by the designated marksmen and like you know sniper folks. And but yeah, it was. And I, I remember too when we were getting ready to go, I went and asked the armorer. Well, first I got permission from the command, but then I asked the armorer, "Hey, you guys got any M6 extra M16s that aren't ECR carded out?" And everyone looked at me like I had a dick run on my forehead. Like you're an officer, why are you wanting an M6? Like why would you want a rifle? <laughs> Are you create like your your you know your TO weapon is your radio. It was like that was the mentality back then, you know. And I'm like, look, man, this thing is gonna get crazy. I'm not <laughs> prophetic by any means, but I think I'm going to need a rifle. I th I think it just for peace of mind. If you have an extra, everyone's like, well, no one's gonna stop you because as long as you're not taking it from a marine. But like. Really, I think you're just over. <laughs> so by the end of it, everyone's like, "Hey, man, can I get a rifle?" <laughs> like, yeah, that's kind of how war works, man. You're gonna probably need something more than your pistol and a radio. <laughs> Anyhow, so that just gives you some of the difference in mindset, man. Like, sure. we grew up very, very fast um, okay. between different iterations, and then, you know, I've joked around on previous podcasts talking to some folks who were there, uh, but. Like I remember leaving in uh, 03, like, see you later, suckers. Like I got my combat action ribbon. Like, like I'm gonna be the big dog. Like it's it, man. We did it. Got my combat action ribbon. We are like, we're the big dogs now. And then I came back off recruiting duty uh, to take over company command, and like most of my lance corporals had like three rows. <laughs> They're on their third deployment, like the hardest woodpecker left. And I'm like coming off of like basically being an, you know, a, a, an office gnome do, being the, on recruiting duty. Like, all right, guys, like, um, show me how this is, how this works. <laughs> like, wow. uh, so yeah, it's very different. We grew up very fast um, at, a, at a pace I wasn't used, wasn't ready for, uh, but hmm. thankfully, the Marines I had were just absolutely amazing. So they could take an over eager freaking son of a bitch like me and whip me into shape to actually make me worth a damn. Um, when I think about Iraq 2003 and uh, amphibious assault vehicles, the main thing that comes to my mind is Nazaria mm. and everything that happened there. I was just curious if, if you were there or involved with any of that somehow? That was part of the cordon. So uh, folks went in and it was just absolutely, it, it was, as you can, I mean, as you've heard and can imagine from the stories, I mean, it was just absolutely, it was so gnarly. And it's not to say that we hadn't, I mean, we'd been obviously fighting all the way up, um, but it was very lopsided. Like I remember sitting, sort of outside of um, and Nazaria, uh, not Nazaria, but, uh, uh, oh God, I'm drawing a blank, but there's the city right as you get to the uh, Tigris River, once you cross over the border, um, it was uh, uh, Al, 
anyways, whatever that was, there's this massive bridge and the whatever armored divisions, they're just, you know, Iraqi regulars and, and some reserve forces, but, you know, they just kept trying to come over this bridge. And we had like, hmm. you know, entire like first tank battalion plus like, you know, LAR. And I mean, it was just, it, it was just shooting ducks in a row and they just kept trying to come over this bridge because they just didn't understand. Like they're just following orders. They say, go across the bridge. We're going to go across the bridge. And it, anyways, so everything was like very lopsided on our way up. And in Nazaria was like the first time that it was like, holy shit. Like this is, we're in a fight. Like we're in a, we're in a real dog fight. Wow. Anyway. So I, I got there after everything. And it, like once we realized we were taking it, like it, it was gonna. So I was just part of the cordon, uh, okay. as we um, and we're just hearing like all of just the madness uh, that was going on, and then like you know some blue on blue incidences, and no one knew where anybody was. You know we didn't have blue force tracker back then, and we did, but it was very rudimentary, and no one really knew how to use it because it's not like they were giving us classes on how to use a lot of this equipment they were fielding for the first time. Sure. You know, so you would get like a blue force tracker for CACs or whatever, but you just, it's more just to see like, where are you sort of in the grand scheme of the evolution? It wasn't really used as well for tracking individual yeah. units and, and where people were going. And then it was usually only like one per vehicle within a column too. Okay. You know, so you could just sort of track these big blue arrow movements. It wasn't like one per vehicle, how it ended up being. Anyhow. Yeah. I guess short story. Okay. Your answer is like yes, I was there, sort of. Okay, okay. Did uh, was there was there anything in your second deployment on that scale that you would say? No, things had really boiled down. Um, we uh, got linked up with um, but Lieutenant General Bellin back when he was Lieutenant Colonel Bellin was the task force commander for. Uh, I think it was 223, uh, 23rd Marines, 2nd Battalion, 23rd Marines. And they were the um, one of the parts of uh, Task Force Grizzly or the uh, RCT-5. Okay. Uh, and they had Haditha. And so we were the active duty component that had attached to that infantry battalion um, to reinforce them. And so they gave us sort of this uh, rat line area up uh, this place called Wadi Haran. It kind of took you from Jordan. And then if you followed it, you could it could take you all the way up to Mosul. So as you can imagine, it was this huge rat line. Um, and we were placed sort of right smack dab in the middle of it in this place called Abu Hayat, which uh, was sort of a meat grinder. It was kind of left alone as everybody was dealing with like Ramadi, Haditha, uh, Haklania was just a little bit above north of us, but everybody was very content to just sort of let Abu Hayat be this like shitty place where people like bad guys would go to like, you know, like most Eisley in Star Wars, you know, like this is where all the bad guys sort of congregated, but everyone knew they were there. It wasn't really a big deal. As long as you got Haditha, you had Ramadi, you could maintain control of the, you know, the MSRs that led north and south until it didn't as that normally happens and then uh they started they think they put um charlie company one one in there uh, had a really hard time our predecessors went in there had a pretty tough go and then we went in as it was sort of as the tables were turning and we just sort of helped we were like the fullback uh 
on a 99-yard drive in football. You know, like, we get the ball, run it one yard, do our celebration. Yeah, we get credit for the touchdown, but it was a bunch of people doing a lot of work hmm. uh, to get us into the red zone so we could punch it in. Um, but, yeah, there were still plenty of shitheads, and there were pl still plenty of people trying to kill us. But it was nothing like OIF one, and it it was nothing like the previous iterations that were of folks that were there, um, who you know couldn't go out with taking a piss without worrying about somebody you know lobbing a you know a mortar or a grenade or something at them. Yeah, hmm. I uh, yeah I wanted to ask that because I I'd heard that before, just uh, uh, different deployments that I, to Iraq at different times, just how starkly different they were. And, sure. I, I was think like trying to learn that, a little bit more about, you know, why that was and what it looked like, I guess. Yeah, I, I think a really good case study for that is um, uh, Huseba. And I think it's those guys who were there like literally eight to 12 months previous for OIF-1. And then they get thrown into this counterinsurgency fight and they're under-equipped, uh, 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 you know, uh, uninformed and trying to figure out this massive shift like well dude we were just fighting a massive you know basically maneuver warfare thing and now we're doing this counterinsurgency thing and we don't really know like the people the cultural landscape the like what are we even really doing here like are we killing people we're we not killing people like hmm. and so those are the those are the deployments um where yeah the the sort of the the learning, the combat learning was really, really steep. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, so you said you were in Afghanistan in 2012? Uh, 11 and 12, yeah. 11 and 12, okay. So what did you do in those intervening years between uh, Iraq and Afghanistan? I was, um, see, uh, so after Iraq, the second time I was I&I &I in Jacksonville, Florida, uh, getting a unit ready to the reserve unit ready to deploy. Um, and then after that, I went back to third tracks. So that was eight to 11. I was the INI in Jacksonville, went back to third tracks and was um, immediately farmed out to RCT five, did my one year in Afghanistan, came back, was the logistics officer for third tracks for a minute. And then was the XO for a minute and then got, pushed over to uh, Quantico, Virginia, uh, to be to work a requirements officer for uh, CD&I at McSiddick. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. So you did a whole a whole year in Afghanistan. Whole year, yeah. Uh, okay. With um, with uh, General Turner, who uh, then Colonel Turner, but um, and that was that was a great deployment. That RCT five was awesome. So again, another RCT five association. Um, the staff was awesome. The Marines were awesome. Uh, and you know, general, and general terms, he's very, very awesome. So okay. yeah, that was a great deployment. I'm just wondering if, if you went, you know, having two combat deployments to Iraq before that, did you go to Afghanistan and feeling, feeling like you knew something about being in combat or like you, you were prepared for something or if you if you or if you got there and felt like it was just a completely different war than what was in iraq yeah definitely the latter okay. um uh 
I didn't get a ton of workup. Like I was told by my monitor, hey, you know, we're we're gonna send you to third tracks, but you know, you haven't deployed at the time uh, in eleven. Like the major subordinate commands, like third tracks, LAR, engineers, Artie. See, they were only holding basically one field grade officer on staff. Everybody else was uh, was getting um was an individual augmentee to somebody. Um, you either taking going like to do a Georgian training team, Jordanian training team, or you know linking up with the RCTs uh, to augment their battle staffs. Mm-hmm. And so they're like, yeah, there's no way you're gonna be in a desk. So just get in your mind that as soon as you check in, as soon as you show up on the inbound roster for first Mardiv, they're gonna suck you up because mm-hmm. you haven't deployed in three years. Um, and so you're probably going to Afghanistan. Like, just get that in your mind. Um, so, yeah, I didn't even get an apartment. Like, I was staying on my buddy's couch for, like, a couple weeks when I checked in. <laughs> uh, and sure enough, like, I was – I got – so oh, that's a really long way of saying, like, I felt very unprepared because I didn't do yeah. any of the workups with RCT5. I didn't do any of the cultural stuff. I didn't do any language stuff. As you can imagine, the Pashtuns are very, very different than the um, Iraqis. Um it's a, it was a completely not just geographically but culturally just it is a completely different world it, it was very very alien to me um and you know 2010 2009 2010 is when we started the surge and so there's still just images of like all this gnarly stuff happening in marja uh you know in in the central helmand uh helmand river valley um uh, everything up in um, it, everything was just it was just still pretty crazy, um, and so yeah, I just felt really overwhelmed, underprepared, hmm. um, and uh, so you know I get there, I actually get assigned to Marja um, to work at the government center, uh, and. So the convoy coming to get me gets hit with an IED. Um, and so I, I don't get to go as quickly as I can because all of the guys that, who got um, hit in the blast have to go through their mace procedures before they'll let them leave the wire again. <laughs> um, and yeah, so I was like, where the hell am I going? Uh, but yeah, it, it, the guys who were in Mar again, like, sort of the fullback like i definitely benefited from all of the tireless efforts and the just the bravery and and stuff of the of my predecessors because marja when i went was just very very different than everything that that i had had seen and was hearing about on the news and we were seeing after accurate reports on and stuff so um yeah there's a much much more progressive uh place um now, Sangin, on the other hand, that's kind of where everybody had gone. So, like, North Marja, Sangin was still pretty crazy. Uh, but as far as where we were at the district centers, it was, it was a lot more calm. Okay. And what, what, was, your, what was your job there, did you say? Uh, at the um, outset, I was sort of the dual-hatting as the government center security detachment OIC. Okay. Um, but I also was helping with some of the transition stuff too. And so we had an AFPAC hand. I don't know if you're familiar with that program, but it was the Afghanistan, Pakistan. I forget what the hand thing stood for, but it was all of these cultural 
specialists. Like they would send them to DLI, they'd send them to uh, Kaoko, like all of these cultural schools, and they were Afghan experts. Hmm. Um, and so I was working with this guy to just help sort of coach them along and bring like, hey, now that it's peaceful, let's start talking about governance. Like, how are you going to do this? So I'd work with like, their version of the FBI and work with their version of the police, whatever army units were there and just sort of teach, start bringing them along. Like, all right, you've got security sort of, um, now let's start talking about how to start providing essential services being, you have like, you know, let's start thinking about schools. Let's start thinking about education. How about some running water? How about this and that? And so I had to balance that with like, our almost daily like stand twos of like you're gonna do an attack today like oh geez all right everybody stop what you're doing stand two um you know let's wait for some motorcycle suicide bomber to come try to blow us up and then like all right he's not coming <laughs> so let's go back and then start showing up and so it was weird to sort of talk to them about hey let's start progressing past security and they're like what are you talking about like we just got another threat that we were about to be, get bombed. Like, I think we want to focus, keep focusing on security. Like, I know, but you guys are going to have to start providing for your people at some point. This is as good a time as any, right? <laughs> so that was kind of a weird, a weird time. Sure. Hmm. Uh, I mean, I'm just thinking about, you know, this month being the two-year anniversary since uh, everything, you know, the evacuation at uh, Hamid Karzai International Airport. Yeah. Did did you ever make it there to that airport while you were no, there? No, no. The furthest north I ever went was uh, this place called Lashkargah, which um, okay, very very far away. It's very very different, um, culturally and geographically, as you can imagine. Um, sure. But uh, yeah, never made it up that far. But I mean, I was just absolutely. Uh, heartbroken isn't really the word uh, for, you know, seeing everything yeah. that was going on um, with our just, you know, absolutely just pulling the carpet out from underneath all of that. And yeah, it was, it was so sad. It, yeah. It was just heartbreaking. Um, what rank were you when, by the time you went to Afghanistan? I was a major. Okay. All right. And uh, you said you retired in 2018? Mm-hmm. Okay. What did you do for the rest of your time in the Marines? Uh, so I could sort of reading the tea leaves that um, I was such a good major that there's no way the Marine Corps could do without, like, <laughs> could promote me to lieutenant colonel for failure of the whole thing is going tits up with me not anyhow um so yeah i was a terminal major i saw that coming so i wanted to do something cool i was working um requirements development for cdni so i was down at the death star in quantico uh, making regular trips up to the pentagon uh i just didn't want to do that man for like the last two years of my time so i jumped on a um to go part of, to be part of a training team in uh, the UAE, so I was part of McTim, um, and worked as a battalion advisor uh, for the uh, Emirati Presidential Guard. Oh, cool! Yeah, and that was accompanied, so I was able to bring my family out to Dubai, and just work with the Emiratis because um, you know they were all down in Yemen, and so they were looking for folks to help them 
uh, you know, with their counterinsurgency fight down there. <laughs> so, yeah, it was, a, it was a really great tour. Uh, it was a lot of fun. So, and it was, a, it was a really nice way to sort of um, leave out um, of the Marine Corps. And so, yeah, I came back. It was like two weeks in Camp Pendleton doing my admin out processing and then adios muchachos. Okay. <laughs> All right. How, uh, how has the civilian world treated you since 2018? It's been great. Um, I was sort of an older, uh, did the family thing a little later in life. So this really afforded me a lot of time to sort of be with uh, my wife and kids during these, you know, the more, some of these formative years. Uh, my son and my two sons are uh, nine and six. So um, I didn't have to do the thing where I like look back like, oh, all these deployments, I missed all these moments. Yeah. Now, that being said, there are a lot of times where I'm like, God damn it, I wish I was on a deployment. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's been fun. All right. Well, that's good. Um, so you said your your first deployment to Iraq, you were a platoon commander, and your second one, a company commander. And then uh, Afghanistan was an individual augment. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So okay. staff pogue kind of. Okay. How uh, how did you how did you like or dislike that progression as far as you know? I guess kind of getting further and further away from working with directly with Marines underneath of you. Yeah, um, I got really lucky um, in a lot of my field grade uh, billets. So as an I and I. You know, it's part of a larger cadre, but we it was only 16 Marines, you know, and so like, and Jacksonville is not a, it's a sort of an urban sprawl, but it's really a very small town, has a very small town feel. So like, for example, the boxing gym I went to, one of my admin sergeants also went there. <laughs> and so like we sparred and he, you know, he beat the shit out of me. And so I like, come back the next day, like, hey, there's certain towns, <laughs> you know, like, um, so it was very cool to still have that close relationship with the team uh, in, in that regard. And then uh, going on the deployment, you know, being sort of the, the debt OIC, I was still very close to those Marines, um, you know, would, you know, uh, walk, the, walk the perimeter, uh, talk to the Marines in post, talk to their platoon commander, you know, on the regular about, you know, what's the plan, for, or it's a security plan, what's the patrol plan. Um, so in that way, I still still felt very much like I was in the field. Like I, I didn't yeah. spend the entire year uh, at Camp Dwyer, you know, getting fat on, you know, defect chow. <laughs> or, um, and, you know, it still had a, you know, didn't have a full on like fitness center area for a gym and all that stuff. Like there's still Hesco, you know, still had to gear up, leaving out, you know, still going on patrols, those sorts of things. Not obviously the same frequency as a company commander, but, you know, still leaving the wire, um, still doing those sorts of things and working with the Afghans directly, you know, almost every night, um, Get it, talking debrief with their, you know, FBI guy, the special agent in charge down there working with the Afghan army. Anyways, that was a lot of fun. So I didn't feel like an office pogue just yet. Um, I got plussed up to take over the, the effect cell. 
the fire and effect cell, which did a lot of the uh, non-kinetic uh, coordination for stuff, you know, information, communications, intel, that kind of stuff. Nice. That one was very much like in the cube, at the defac, in my, you know, long bunk bed trailer thing at Camp Dwyer. Um, but even then, like I got to hang out with uh, Colonel, then Colonel Turner a lot because, you know, I was one of his key advisors for sort of atmospherics going on. And so when he would leave the wire and go on tour, I would go with him. So that was a lot of, I mean, like I said, that, that deployment was really great for all of the things that it could have been, um, all the shitty things it could have been. It, and I, I had a great time and, and I still hold um general turner like it's such high regard like it's i can't say enough about he's one of my favorite people <laughs> um the, but then uh, the exact and then coming back to the battalion it was great like being a logistics officer as we're sort of getting back into core competencies and marines are getting back on the avs and doing water ops and getting all the do that stuff still very interactive with the marines and then as the xo you're sort of like the guy to go to for all the junior staff stuff, you know? So, sure. I mean, I'm, I'm working with the comp new company commanders. I'm working with our junior staff. We're finally getting like healthy again, as far as personnel. So we're actually like, Oh, we've actually got three field grade officers here. instead of just one sort of. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, it, it was a lot of fun. I, I, it was very busy, you know, working 14, 16 hour days. So, but at the same time, you know, like as many times as I was out going like, Damn this job! I would look out over the Pacific and see the sun setting, and like, ah, eh, it's not so bad. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, and my wife, uh, fiance at the time, was here in Virginia, um, so I was just living in like this shitty studio apartment in Oceanside near the pier, and so it was like, oh, you know, free time I go surfing, drink some beers. Most of the time I'm in the office, but you know, things could definitely be worse. Yeah. And they got there. Once I went to work at CDNI as a requirements development guy, I was like, oh God, kill me. <laughs> like dying a little bit every and that's to say that like those acquisitions folks and everything we do is absolutely very, very critical job. It just was not my bag. And that's where sure. I started to feel like, holy shit, like this being a staff guy and doing this thing and wearing Charlie's every day and like going and like talking in PowerPoint. Like that was the preferred communication medium. Like, oh God, I'm gonna lose it. <laughs> so you could see sort of where my career took a turn. And then um was able to go back out to the UAE and sort of regalvanize yeah. sort of my joie de vivre, my esprit de corps uh, for sure. being a Marine. Yeah. Good. That's good. How did you get uh linked up with the Marine Corps Association? Um, so at CD and I, uh, Colonel Woodbridge, the, um, the editor in chief for Leatherneck and Gazette, he was the deputy director for, uh, our direct, our directorate, uh, combat development directorate. Um, and he's awesome. Like he was so great to work with and, and work for. Um, and so he ended up taking over as the senior editor for the Gazette and, um, we had done, they had done like this um, symposium thing. And so I just sort of got selected to help out with this um, sci-fi vignette symposium that Futures Division was working. Anyhow, um, so I ended up writing um, a reoccurring piece um, for the Gazette 
while I was in the UAE, I would send stuff in uh, and it would get published. And then uh, when I retired, I got, I went back to graduate. I stole my GI Bill for my kids, went to graduate school um, for creative writing. And then when I graduated, like most good graduate students, I had no options, <laughs> nothing on the horizon. <laughs> Um, you know, liberal arts education. Um, and so I uh, just put an email out to him like, hey, sir, I just graduated with this fucking sweet MFA. Um, I'm just looking to get my foot in the door on any sort of publishing. Love my name to get associated with things. So I work for free, but if you need any editing help or whatever, just let me know. Uh, my, you know, I'll be happy to help out in any way I can. And you just happen to say like, well, interestingly enough, we're sort of in a transition period and we're looking for a deputy editor. And so I was like, may I apply? He's like, <laughs> yes, sir, you may. And so, yeah, there. that's how that happened. Okay, great. Very good. So that's how many, how long has that been now? With, with uh, the... Yeah, so that was uh, June of 21. Okay. Okay. Um. So I uh, I don't I don't know if this is necessarily the end of the uh, the podcast here or not, but I, I'm supposed to ask at some point your uh, your your best day in the Marine Corps. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, um, in, in standard uh, sort of precursor applies. Every day was awesome. It's hard to really pick uh, all of all <laughs> my Marines. Um, but I think the day I love my wife, obviously the day I got married in blues <laughs> doing the sword arch, of course, um, she's on a Marine, but that I was still in the Marine Corps. And so she got, you know, trial by fire that way. Um, but I think as far as like when I really felt like the esprit de corps, um, really just hit me was after, um, our, Deployment, my Charlie company deployment with um, Charlie Third Tracks. We came back and it was uh, 08. And, you know, for all of the insurgents efforts to try to kill us, um, the only losses we took were non-combat related losses. Mm -hmm. um, and so that would, I, I would, I tell you the, the thing more than any of the violence, more than any of the kinetics, more than anything I've ever experienced, the thing that weighed on me the most in all my career was just this idea that I could lose somebody. Like it was, it would literally keep me up at night. And so when we were marching back, you know, we do the thing, we, we get off the trucks, we turn our weapons in the armory. Now we're going to march to the parade deck to all the families and everything. And so that was really cool. You know, everyone's calling your know, first time's calling cadence. We're marching over, start hearing the cheers, all that stuff. And I remember, as I was securing the Marines um, and dismissing them from this just absolutely unbelievable deployment, I just brought everybody in, like everybody bringing you like old football style. We just hands in the middle. And I just, I just remember telling them like how much, uh, how proud of them I were. I mean, cause you have to understand we're in this place that was known as a hotbed for insurgents. And most of the Marines I had had multiple combat deployments in that same region and we knew that our primary mission was partnering with the iraqis to get them on board you know we're going to put the motto was sort of we're putting iraqi face on it so everything we did was partnered with us sort of shadowing very very few marine pure 
like patrols, operations, anything like that. And so for these Marines, you know, 20 years old, 21 years old, 19 years old, guys who literally were fighting in these same areas just six, eight months ago, to then make that pivot and to do that partnership with people who we knew were on the other side of that. Um, you know, like I said, like these are dudes that they were shooting at, they were shooting at them. And now here we are partner calling them quote unquote police um, and fighting against these insurgents. Like for them to do that thing, I was just, I can't tell you how amazing it was to see them and like to run patrols on their own, like to do up their plan, to do their briefs, to do their checks. Fucking A, I, these guys, when I was their age, I was like still drunk and high in some college dorm somewhere, you know, throwing up my brains, pretending I was quote unquote going to class or like getting a degree. <laughs> you know, like this is insane to think about where these guys were in relation to my development. And so I just got them all in and I just, it, to this day, like I can't tell you how proud I was to just having been part of that. Cause I knew that had nothing to do with me. It had everything to do with God's grace and their ability it, it was just, it was just the most amazing thing. So that moment, my favorite moment in the Marine Corps is that moment where I had everybody's hands in. I was just able to tell them like how genuinely proud and how much I genuinely loved all of them. Hmm. And, and then how sad I was then to, to release them yeah, and, and to not be their company commander anymore. But man, that moment, that'll stay with me forever. Cool. Are right, you still able to keep in touch with any of those guys? Um, some of the lieutenants, so one of the lieutenants I actually saw at Modern Day Marine, he's now Lieutenant Colonel, he's now the I and I for fourth tracks, uh, <laughs> Lieutenant Colonel Lieutenant Colonel Tim Riemann. Um, but yeah, no, a lot of folks have just sort of, you know, as life has gone on, we've yeah. all sort of gone our, our separate ways. Um, but uh, those all of those guys will just stay, I mean, there's a place for them in my heart for sure. And I would love if any of you guys are listening, like, please, if you want to reach out, hit me up, man. Uh, I would love to get back in touch with all of you guys. Charlie third tracks, man. We were the shit. <laughs> <laughs> what, uh, what has it been like for you now over, you know, the past hundred episodes getting to, you know, w with your experience, your combat deployments, all of that, getting to hear stories from some of the other Marines that you've had a chance to interview and just, you know, kind of seeing how your story fits with their story and how it all just kind of fits into the, the history of the Marine Corps. And uh, I just, you know, I'm just wondering what it's been like for you to, to, to do these interviews that you do and host this podcast and just kind of seeing how it all fits together. Yeah, thanks. That's a great question. Um, I, I find that this um, it's really rewarding and really fulfilling. I had no intention of doing this. Uh, I was the ideas guy. Like one of the things that I got brought on to do for the Marine Corps Association was to be the content coordinator. So I was fucking creatively coordinating content, you know, as <laughs> per the billet description. And then I was like, all right, so now that you guys have this idea, who are you going to get to host it? And everyone's like looking at me like I'm crazy. Like, what do you mean? Like you, like, that's a bad idea. That's a really, really bad idea. Uh, as your content coordinator, I think that's a horrible <laughs> idea. Um, and so once I was like, all right, I'll start it. Let's just get the ball rolling. Um, but you guys got to find somebody else. hundred episodes later, like here we are. Uh, so it's been really great 
Mm-hmm. Um, it's been so it's so cliche and trite, but I'm just gonna say it because it's true. But like, it's been very humbling. Um, because you get to see people who have done like truly extraordinary things. Um, Mm -hmm. and I've been sort of like extraordinary adjacent (laughs) with a lot of these folks, you know, like, you know, people that come to mind are like, you know, Casey Tellison or, um, uh, uh, oh God, I can't believe I'm drawing a blank on these folks, but I mean, there's so many, um, just wonderful, wonderful, you know, uh, Tom Schumann, for example, or guy Kyle Carpenter, for Pete's sakes, um, even folks in the office like Colonel Woodbridge. I mean, geez, the guy is just a wealth of knowledge and experience. Um, uh, and then getting to meet wonderful people like yourself and William, like William's, he's he's on the other line, you know, muted. But dude, the guy's hilarious and what a huge brain. Um, and also give me an excuse to schmooze with my friends, you know, like bring in like Jeff Stoltz and like. Mike and Adam Hunziker is just talking shit, you know, and then calling it a show. Um, <laughs> but it, it's been so cool. It's been so great. But yeah, I guess the word is really like humbling. Um, you know, it's just like God, Sergeant Major LeHue uh, yeah. speaking of Nazaria, you know, like, dude, these guys, and just the way that they carry themselves and aren't braggadocious about it. They're not arrogant about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and just knowing sort of, like I said, just sort of being on the periphery as all these people were, while a lot of these folks are doing these things and seeing it, you know, being like a hundred a hundred miles removed from it or something, or you know, just one yeah. grid space away. And they're like, man, what a freaking badass. And then like, oh shit, that badass is sitting here in the sound yeah. studio. Let's talk about how badass you are. Um, so yeah, that's been so cool. It's been so yeah. cool. And, and just sort of like provide a forum for these people to you know like we say like stories matter like just give everybody a forum to like tell us about what's going yeah. on man yeah. yeah absolutely no hum- humbling i think is a perfect word I-, I know that's definitely the way that i feel when i have the chance to interview veterans I, you know y- you know you were uh badass adjacent you know i i was like nowhere near any of that stuff. <laughs> and, and a lot of the guys that I interview are Vietnam vets when I wasn't even alive, you know, right, but right. One, one, one thing that has just always shocked me is how just having earned the same Eagle Goban anchor in, in their eyes is like enough, I guess. Yeah. You know, I had, I had yeah. one, ex- one experience, uh, at a reunion that the, they invited me to come and, uh, you know, I'm like surrounded by all these guys who are like caisson veterans and all sorts of other things like that. But they just welcomed me like a brother, you know, fed me, put me up in the hotel and shared all their stories with me just because I was a Marine, too. And I was willing to listen now <laughs> to their yeah, stories. That's an guess. amazing thing. That's such a great observation. Yeah, it is so crazy that just because like you were willing to step on the yellow footprints and like. You know, you got your eagle globe and anchor. Like, dude, you're in. Like, we don't have to like talk really more anymore about it. Now we'll obviously give each other shit about things, but you know, at the end of the day, man, like, it's a it's a true brotherhood. Uh, it, yeah. it, you know, it, it's a true family because obviously, yeah. yeah, there's so much to it. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, I guess uh, just one thing I'm a little curious about. Uh, kind of a twist on the um, the standard last question of the podcast uh for for this one specifically looking back over a hundred episodes i don't know if we would maybe call it the best podcast but what's what's one 
of your favorites that stands out in your mind as far as one that you just loved having the chance to do? Oh, man. I, I To be quite honest, it's usually the last one. Um like whatever one we just did is usually my favorite because they've had, they really, and it's such, so, that sounds so cheeseball, but it's so true. Like I've, I really enjoyed like all 100 that we've done, even ones that I haven't necessarily participated in directly. This has just been a really fun show, but I guess it's like, as far as like notoriety, like Kyle Carpenter was really, it really stands out. It's fairly recent. Obviously modern day Marine was a lot of fun, but man, that guy just being around him and just his sort of presence Mm-hmm. So Kyle Carpenter was amazing. Uh, getting my boy Jeff on the show, uh, actor from uh, 13 Strong, was a lot of fun just because, <laughs> like I said, is it, I, dude, I can't get the guy to answer a text, but I'm like, hey, I'm going to put you on a show. Like, of course, he's right there. Um, <laughs> and so that was fun to hang out with him. Like, all of our straight talks with uh, Mike Hunziker have been a ton of fun. Sergeant Major LaHue is so great. You just turn the microphone on and just sit back and listen to him. He's mm-hmm. so great. Um, Casey Tellison was hilarious. Uh, that's a recent episode. Oh gosh, um, Becky Calder, first female pilot to graduate Top Gun. So maybe Modern Day Marine, like as a thing, Modern Day Marine was a lot of fun. That was that okay. was super cool, uh, being able to go and do that. That maybe stands <laughs> out the most because just like in the trenches there at Modern Day Marine, we got to meet so many really cool people, but. Yeah, dude, I, I, it'd be hard to nail down like a one favorite yeah. show. Like I said, I'm probably sure. the, whatever the one we just did because they're always so fun. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, I mean, that's uh, that's about all the questions. Dude, that you're I have great for at you. this. You want a job? You want an extra job? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I'm getting really busy, man. You can you can handle this easy. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not used to uh, not used to being recorded. Usually, I think I sound like an idiot. <laughs> Oh, dude, then you're perfect for this job. But no, you don't sound like an eight at all. You're a very, you have a very nice presence about you. I really, very calming, disarming, all these things. You ask great questions. Like, dude, I think I just cleared up some white space on my calendar. <laughs> all right. Well, um, I'm not sure how to end this here i don't know No, this is great thank thank you so much and then uh hey william hey yeah I'm, I'm, the, uh, the the eavesdropper is back uh anyways everyone kyle thanks for being our guest interviewer vic pleasure as always um uh, everyone thank you again for tuning in for 100 episodes i hopefully we'll have you know an infinite amount more for the rest of my life as long as i'm employed the marine corps association yeah so. dude 100 episodes is so crazy i can't believe we're already at 100 this is amazing and have such a shitty guest for your hundredth episode. <laughs> uh, great interview. But anyways, thank you, audience, for tuning in. And we wish you uh, all the best. And uh, please uh, tune in again to uh, listen to more of our jib-jabbing. Thanks, everybody. Scuttlebutt is a production of the Marine Corps Association. I am William Trudy. But you've also heard the voices or contributions of Vic Rubel, USMC Retired, Andrew Lichman, Retired Frazier. The opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect the official stance of the Marine Corps, DOD, or Marine Corps Association.